Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Strike and Ellicott Files, an unofficial podcast dedicated to all things Corner and Strike, as written by Robert Galbraith. My name is Kens, and today, Lindsay, Pools, and I are joined by Sam, who's joining us for our reread of Troubled Blood, this time covering chapters 50 through 53. As always, please be warned that our discussion of Troubled Blood will reference events that occur later in the book, as well as previous books in the series. Without further ado, let's get started. We have a few things that we wanted to go over before we actually started with chapter 50. It's been an exciting week. It's been great. It has. It has. And Lindsay, you wanted to make a correction, right? Because we had a little bit of a, an oopsie there in our last episode. In the last episode, we were talking about Robin, how she eats Satchel's chips at the end of the interview. We thought that it was a nice reflection to his interview with Liz Tassel. But I went back and reread it, and it turns out that is not in the book. It is in the show where he dips the chip into the soup. But in the book, the waiter takes away her soup, and then Strike orders dessert naturally. Of course. I guess that scene was just so perfectly Strike that it all fit into our heads. Yeah. Yeah. Is there really nowhere in the book where he steals anyone's food? Because that is an egregious oversight. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone knows of any time let yeah. us know i can't think of any off the top of my head i can't either the only ones that come to mind is when they're in the land rover and he has the biscuits and the food that robin always brings along he did eat all her biscuits that one time i guess this just shows that robin has become more strike than strike himself at this point <laughs> <laughs> good for her i just wanted to make sure that we corrected that of course and moving on to the exciting news about the troubled blood adaptation I don't know what magazine or newspaper this comes out of, but there is a little clip going around that says Strike will return to BBC One. The script for the latest adventure of J.K. Rowling's sleuth, Corman Strike, is now being written. Trouble Blood, the fifth Strike novel, is being adapted by Tom Edge. The news is that it's happening. It's happening. It's being written right now. I do not envy that scriptwriter because that book is going to be... I would not want that job. No. Well, it'll be interesting to see what they keep and what they don't because because, mm -hmm. you know, JKR has such a big hand in what stays and what goes, I imagine. So it'll be interesting to see what she deems important. That's exciting when you watch the adaptations to think about maybe this wasn't kept, so maybe it's not important in future books. Yeah. The agency site says that Trouble Blood is in production. It will be on BBC One and HBO and four episodes that are each hour long. So yeah, I'm excited. I'm hoping there's a lot of flashbacks and that we get to see some cool 70s outfits. <laughs> I want to see Margot. I want her to come to life for us the way she does in the book. And I always feel like the most important thing in an adaptation isn't capturing the details beat for beat. It's capturing the spirit of the texture adapting, its core themes and creative essence and the essence of the characters. That's what I care about. I feel like once you cut out a lot of the red herrings and all that other crap, yeah. you're going to be able to fit that into four hours. I mean, think about Absolutely. that. Four hours of additional strike content. That's awesome. If these were movies, we would get half of that. Yeah. So four hours. Four hours is great. Are they going to show us Morris's dick pic? I hope not. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm remembering watching American Gods and there was a surprise dick pic at one point and it was hilarious, but HBO might be more lenient than BBC on that kind of stuff. I don't think BBC would do that at nine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, it's still exciting. Hopefully we'll have that to look forward to soonish. I'm excited about it. Other people are not. Oh, well, you can't please everyone. Oh, am I allowed to say what my biggest complaint about adaptations is? 
people complaining about adaptations. That is it. Yep. Enjoy it for what it is. And, you know, it's something completely extra that we're getting. Take it for what it is, not what you want it to be. Yeah, these things have to be edited and changed or cut in a different way to tell the story, sometimes to different audience. Or there are budgets and schedules and... I mean, it's never going to be the book. I just want to enjoy it as an extension of something that I love. And if a scene that I like isn't there, it's still there in the book. It doesn't take it away from me. Exactly. That's true. And I also feel like this is something I have no control over. Yeah. No one's in my DMs asking me about my opinions on the script. Well, until the BBC puts me in charge of yeah. their programming, which I've been <laughs> petitioning for them to do. But until then, we have no control over this. So, yeah. There was a lot of negative comments that just felt a little disheartening yesterday. I just wanted to be excited oh, about well. it yeah that's that's kind of how i felt as well i was in the middle of town and i saw it flash up i was so excited and then yeah about a few hours later i you know Womp read womp. through what other people said it's just like uh can't we all be as excited as me yeah <laughs> I, I will be i'll be as excited as you <laughs> mm -hmm. the other exciting thing that happened this morning which for reference today's sunday before the episode comes out did you guys see the social media post for the robert galbraith accounts where they reshared that video about book six they're really building it up aren't they I you can see so. the, the snowball getting bigger and bigger yeah i do agree i think it's ramping up a little bit i'm not sure how much longer i can wait it's not even been a year i know it i can just wait feels <laughs> bad because oh my god what a way to end it were you here after career of evil i was not you are a veteran pool let's not forget that three-year wait that three-year wait was torture it was so i did my time three years of it in Azkaban <laughs> <laughs> and now a year is like I've barely even finished digesting the book all right should we go into chapter 50 absolutely in this one strike shows up to Janice's house for a surprise interview for the epigraph it goes I me said she where am I or with whom among the living or among the dead creepy great epigraph for Janice right and all her trophy photos of all her victims on her mantle oh totally. very much so her drawer full of eulogies reading through this chapter again Joe's having so much fun just dangling stuff all around you can tell she must have had so much fun going back I mean like okay we're gonna put dropping all here. those clues yeah. yes exactly but we'll get to that in a second there are a few particularly good parts for that this one makes me feel like I should have been paying more attention to the epigraphs on the first time around because this is a pretty telling one I think among the dead and then all her pictures she even references the pictures she says it's so depressing all of these dead relatives no it's not yeah I agree that the epigraph is a great tie into Janice and maybe a signal to the readers if they're paying attention that the dead people were important and something to sort of look harder at the photographs make me wonder if Irene ever went to her house hmm I'm guessing not. Irene seems like the kind who loves her own house, who loves having people over to it, who doesn't want to leave its comfort to go to a small, pokey, shabby little apartment as she might see it, and who would see it as a great gift to have Janice come over. And a lot of Janice going over is probably taking care of her. <laughs> taking care of her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yikes. Some of the people Irene might not recognize, but some she might, like Joanna Hammond, right? She had her photograph up. Yeah, I think so. It says on his first attempt to visit Janice, he left without receiving any answer to his knock. I started wondering if Janice maybe was home and didn't answer the door or she could have just been out, but... What do you guys think? Do you think she was ignoring him on his first attempt? I don't know. She could have genuinely been out. These books are very much life happens. And in life, sometimes people are out and you're trying to surprise them and, and you fail. 
because they're doing their shopping. And I think Janice enjoys sort of matching wits with Strike. She enjoys mm-hmm. playing the game and she enjoys feeling that sense of power that he's falling for her lies. And she knows he is because she's really good at it. So I don't know either, but it's an interesting question. I think she kind of likes trying to take him down like the wrong track. Mm-hmm. I think if she was in, she would have answered the door. Unless she needed to buy time to think of what she was going to say, of course. Yeah. Yeah, it's just hard to know because sometimes she's so reckless, but she's also smart. But by the same token, she's got a guard by strike later on in here. Well, she appears to be. Well, that's the yeah, facade. Yeah, there's the rub. But as Strike is walking to Janice's house, in a surprise to no one, he's thinking about Robin. Is he ever not thinking about Robin? And does he really (laughs) need an excuse to have her cross his mind at this point? She just strolls in whenever she feels like. She lives in there rent-free. And he's happy to have her there. He would never dream of charging her rent. No. He was thinking about Robin as he trudged along smoking because she just turned down the opportunity of joining him to interview Janice saying that there was something else she needed to do, but not specifying what that something was. I think it's very sweet how often he wants to interview people with her. Sure, they're working a case together, but it's also an excuse to spend time with her. It absolutely is. There are way more joint interviews and attempted joint interviews than in the other books. Right. Like, what do we have? We had the group interview with the Chisels and Lethal White because she had to drive them up. We had Career of Evil. There was Tempest and Jason because she did the legwork. But in this, it's like basically every interview is... Sorry, you said the leg. She did the legwork. <laughs> oh my God. But I'm pumped. Yeah, I'm going to pretend that was intentional. We've been waiting 15 episodes to say that one. <laughs> <laughs> But in this, he's just asking her along to every interview, even if he doesn't need her unique skills, by which I mean her established rapport with someone or her ability to put someone at their ease. He's still asking her along just because she's asking great questions and noticing great stuff and she's a good detective and he likes being around her. He likes her face. He likes her voice. He likes being around her. Yeah, so it feels like it's a bit of a demonstration about how much she truly is his partner in this book. Yeah. And also when she offers, you know, if you want to go get more sleep, I can interview them on my own. He's always like, no, 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 I'll I'll be there. But not because he doesn't trust her to do the interview. Of course. Because he wants to interview with her. I think it's really cute how he's looking for more and more excuses to either talk to her longer or spend more time with her. Whether he realizes Mm -hmm. it or not, I think he probably does, though he doesn't talk about it in his internal monologue. I want to see more of that. I think we're gonna, hopefully. His curiosity about her having something else to do is also cute, but it also makes me wonder how Robin sounded on the phone when she lied to him, because we know she's a great actress, but is she just more flustered lying to him? That's what I was sort of thinking too, because we've seen Robin lie to Matthew at the drop of the hat and be really convincing at it and good at being undercover. Either Strike knows her so well, than her husband did that he can just pick up these little tells and he is a detective her first husband her first husband my apologies (laughs) (laughs) or she's just not good at lying to strike i think both options are adorable maybe it's a little bit of both yeah maybe a little bit of both and i think it's another example of how just the differences in their relationship with each other versus Mm -hmm. the relationship with their previous unhealthy partners i'm inclined to think that it's the former where you're saying that strike just knows her so well that he knows he has this uncanny ability to know when she's either lying by omission or not quite telling the truth there's a part where they're talking and strike says something about how you can't use the job as an excuse to get away from your home life and she's internally oh my god how did he know that but he's 
picked up on stuff like that before. He's also noticed before that Robin has that same uncanny ability to pick out the false note. And so that's why he tries to keep his lies to her short and sweet. Like when she asked him what he thought of Matthew, she knew exactly what his thoughts were. So I think that they're both really good at both picking out lies and reading each other. Speaking of Matthew. Ugh, can we not? <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> well, let's, because it's a sweet line. Since she left Matthew, I could become used to more ease and openness between him and Robin. Aww. I like being told that there's more ease and openness between them. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of something you said Pool's last episode when she brought up the missing flight, how it signifies that there's more between them than we see. We don't always see the ease and openness, just like we don't always see them talk about random life things. But it's clear from both of the examples that they do. The fact that Matthew was the barrier to ease and openness between them is the best demonstration that their relationship is not actually a platonic relationship. If it was platonic, her husband wouldn't be a, her first husband, wouldn't be a Thank barrier you. to ease and openness, right? I don't know. I think it's just the ease and openness between brother and sister. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. If you look at the Robin and Strike from Lethal White compared to the Robin and Strike from Troubled Blood, you can see how it's all moved on so much more. And they're obviously so different. I look at the Strike in Cuckoo's Calling compared to now, and they're just completely different people. He has grown so much. It's amazing that you can see the growth in their relationship when neither of them are openly demonstrative. They're both quite reserved. They don't really say what's on their mind a lot. But even then, you can still feel that they're closer and easier with each other. But yeah, Strike has grown a lot since Cuckoo's Calling. He really has. So here's a clue if I ever saw one. It says, the sky darkened as Strike approached Janice's house. (gasps) Ooh, foreshadowing. Like when Robin's ring darkened approaching Strike's store. Yes, I love that one. Is it too much of a stretch to suggest that her dark red door is also a clue? No. Because it's not just her door. Her entire living room is red. Yeah, it just makes me think of blood. Some important liquid. Important liquid, blood. I absolutely think that all of the red surrounding Janice is some symbolism. But the fun thing here for me is that we get a bit thrown off because the red in her room, it's juxtaposed with all these symbols of romance. Like she's watching Say Yes to the Dress. She has the Cinderella carriage. Strike himself thinks she has a romantic heart. So we associate the red with passion and love. And we forget that red means murder, blood, danger, red rum, as it were. It's neat symbolism that's also throwing us off a bit. I really like that. And it feels so stuffy and oppressive. Really cool description. It can also mean safety as well. Like you think of fire engines and stuff. And in the UK, we have air ambulance as well. And those helicopters are red. So it's weird how your perception of colour and stuff can shift what you think of it. It is. Perception of colour can be very cultural as well. It's interesting the different perspectives that people bring to a text affects sort of how they read the symbolism. Should I not tell you that my front door is also dark red? Well, that tracks. I mean, you are a psychopath. (laughs) The evidence is piling up that we should be very afraid for our lives. You um, you don't keep your hair dryer in your living room, do you? No, but I do blow dry my hair while sitting on the floor like she said she does. Uh Uh-oh. Am I Janice? Do you have suspicious dates in your house? Do you have cling wrap? Okay, I have dates in the kitchen. I also have shrink wrap supplies. Okay. I'm not going to lie, Lindsay, this isn't sounding good. I'm calling in an anonymous tip. The only reason I'm not going into witness protection is because I'm several thousand miles away from you. (laughs) (laughs) And also, her knees clicking. Is Joe trying to remind me that I'm getting old? Because same. Yeah, I mean, same. 
Makes me feel kind of bad for Jess. I'm like, oof, take it easy on your knees, you murderer. How about this? It says, when he realized that his quarry must be in, however, he successfully pushed all thoughts of his business partner out of his mind, crossed the road at a quicker pace, and knocked firmly on the front door. I like her being described as his quarry. It's a good word. Yeah. She really is his prey, even though he doesn't fully realize to what extent at this point. Maybe his subconscious, like Talbot's, is sort of seeing her in a way that he consciously doesn't realize. I don't think I have any more proof of that, but I'm going to keep my eye out. Oh, I think I have something actually later. Oh, I can't wait. Speaking of the Say Yes to the Dress clip, I know you found something very cool. Yeah, go check out the Nightingale Grove location page on Strike Fans because I think I found the exact YouTube clip. J.K. Rowling must have watched this clip to use for the book because all of the quotes in the book are in this three-minute clip. So you can see the whole thing. It's on the page. I linked to it. It's so fun to see those things. Mm -hmm. It's also ridiculous because the dress is a silver thing Yeah, that costs $34,000. Oh my God. The back part of it, the train of it looks like a silver garbage bag yeah <laughs> it looks like couture tidman is what it is it's ugly but good detective work oh thank you it's so neat to see that that's a real clip sending it to janice herself janice is not pleased she's not happy to see him because you know obviously she's shrink wrapping poison in the living room she's not happy to see strike and she's instantly hustling to sort of clear away her murder supplies and when she's doing this sort of hustle and annoyed that he's dropped in because she's in a mess of poisoning strike says that he was reminded poignantly of joan and i think that this is that sort of social categorization thing that is the theme in the whole book rearing its head again he sees janice as sharing traits with joan being upset to be caught in a tiny mess and hustling to clear it out of the way for a guest so because of this he automatically assigns her the other traits of joan being loving nice a friendly lady and because he does this it sort of makes it harder for him to be suspicious of her it sort of puts her in the good person category and he's not as suspicious as he normally would be with someone he's interviewing i was thinking the same thing as you if joan wasn't at the forefront of his mind throughout this entire process do you think he would have noticed things that he didn't i think it would have gone quite differently that's a good question yeah that's a good point yeah maybe so interesting is her mood here also a clue because the first time we meet her she's very friendly and kind and here she you know is it saying that maybe she has something to hide like we're revealing something else to her another layer to her there's more to her yeah like the mood reminds her of joan but actually her mood is a clue for us that we don't see at the same time strikes off and said that guilty people can't help inserting themselves into investigations right so i was wondering janice is presenting some reluctance and annoyance to get drawn into this and i'm wondering if it's deliberate of her that she's so clever she's putting this on to throw suspicion off of herself she's trying to seem more authentic and less like a murderer but she'd have to be quite knowledgeable about what murderers do to do that that makes me wonder how many times she's been asked questions about somebody's death how experienced is she in giving interviews with police or detectives that is an interesting question the only one that was investigated it seems like was margot's disappearance wasn't it joanna hammond yeah joanna too because all the other ones she either made look like accidents or kevin just ran away to dubai so yeah but that's a good point how experienced is she in being interviewed and having to put police off when she offers him the date, it's so reckless in hindsight. And even she admits that later, but she just yeah. can't help herself. She can't help herself. I wonder what she was putting in them. I feel like she genuinely was planning to give the date as a gift 
probably to Irene. Yes. So I'm guessing the poison wouldn't have been fatal and would have just made him think he was sick, but it is still. But the difference is giving it to Irene, she's already thinks that she has this reoccurring issue, right? Mm -hmm. So she wouldn't question it. Mm -hmm. Strike might start to put it together. So it was very reckless. Yeah, it was reckless. Sometimes she just can't help herself, can she? Mm-hmm. Reading back and looking at this, you can see the drive she has to just cause chaos and see what happens. I want to reference what you said earlier about the Cinderella carriage and her romantic heart. First of all, I think this is another thing that I put on the location page. I found something similar to what's described in the book in the Cinderella carriage. I have no way of knowing if it's actually what she's referencing, but it was still a fun find. But the fact that he thinks evidently beneath Janice's no-nonsense clothing, there beat a romantic heart. I want to point this out because later on when we get to Talbot's drawing, I think this is referenced again. I think this might be a clue that comes up later in Talbot's drawing. Oh, interesting. I want to make a note of it here so when we get to it later, we all remember what, what I'm talking about. Definitely. Going back to the pictures on her wall where she says it was depressing, coming back in here, the number of dead people. I love all of the examples of just how clever Janice is and just what a good liar she is because she's bringing up the topic of her murder wall. She's bringing it up. She's her murder wall. Every psychopath has a murder wall. I'm sure you, Lindsay, have a murder wall. (laughs) I don't have a murder wall. Okay. Lies. So she's bringing up her wall of murder victims, and she's coming right out the gate with a preemptive defense for having those mementos, Mm -hmm. just in case strikes started to question. And at the same time, by bringing up photographs, she's also giving an excuse preemptively for why she doesn't have photos of the vacation she's supposedly been on for the past few weeks, right? The neighbor's helping her develop them. Yeah, he has them, so you can't see them. Did I just say develop? Did I just age myself? Yeah, you're, Print you're them. very old. Print them. <laughs> it makes me laugh because if she's thinking that Strike is going to politely ask to flip through <laughs> yeah. her vacation yeah. photos, she could not be more off base with that. Oh, that's just a thought that she, that, that makes me laugh. Should we get to the actual interview? Yes. So what do they all talk about? He asks her about Ricci and Gloria. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge clue. She explains how the rumor got started about Ricci burying a body in concrete, which is what gave her the idea. Exactly. It put the idea in people's minds, you know, burying bodies in concrete. It literally put the idea in her mind. Yeah. And then it also tells us where she got it from because she says, my Larry said to me, he was a builder, you know, it's not like workmen wouldn't have noticed a fresh load of concrete when they turned up for work. It's mad, isn't it? She literally tells him near enough right there she is straight up dangling it right in front of his face either she's phenomenally arrogant and thinks that he won't be able to figure out or she just can't help herself from doing this it's hard with her because i really can't tell which it is maybe a bit of both because she does know that she is good at lying and she does have that little bit of instability that she's just gonna sometimes do stuff the best lies are based on truth she's kind of just building on that and just going from there she weaves truth and pretend innocence and lies together so well she's the best liar he's ever met which in his career is really saying something with charlotte that's saying something Mm -hmm. oh my god you're right (laughs) wow impressive Impressive. I, you know, I feel horrible saying impressive about a serial killer, but give her a gold star for her lying skills. 
Is there a reason Janice doesn't want Strike to listen to Irene about Gloria? Is it just re-emphasizing not to listen to Irene? And hasn't she done that before? Oh, yeah. You can trust her on some things, but on things that might potentially incriminate Janice, then it's like, "Mm, I wouldn't trust her on that. She's definitely trying to discredit Irene wherever she can. She's a person who knows the most. Irene doesn't know too much. Irene has too much knowledge. She might not know that she knows, but she does know stuff that Strike would be able to piece together. His next question is about Brenner and the Athorns. Her reaction to this is interesting. She really plays it up. Yeah, she's not really upset by this information. She acts very impressed with him finding the Athorns. Of course, she already knows that he found them because she literally pretended to be a social worker and called him about them and discussed it. So she's doing some good acting here. But here's where she slips up and she says that they have fragile X syndrome, which by rights, she really probably wouldn't be calling it fragile x syndrome if she'd only known them back in the 70s um so that's a clue i also love that when janice says she hopes they're being taken care of and strike actually talks about the social worker i bet she's thrilled oh definitely yeah big song knowing that she sucked him in so well with that social worker act that's got to be an enormous thrill for her and then when she finds out what the social worker said god the layers of this are blowing my mind she acts so upset about it so upset and with this you can really see the way her conversational strategy works so she is really playing up this upset because it's a way of distracting him from the athorns themselves to dr brenner right Mm -hmm. she's focusing on how upset she is about what brenner might have done and maybe he won't ask other inconvenient questions about the athorns And then when she's done with that, she sort of brings up Oakton to lead him on a different track. And again, keep him away from the Athorns, right? It's really masterful. I love when she brings up Oakton. And then he's like, if Oakton comes around here again, said Strike, I'd advise you not to let him in. He's done time, you know, for conning. He just stopped himself saying old single women out of their money. (laughs) (laughs) So first of all, this is adorable. And I love every time Strike goes out of his way to advise women on how to be safe and to help them be safe. He's done this before, and I just, I think it's really sweet and protective of him. But the sort of stopping himself reminded me of his very first interview with Bristow and Cuckoo's Calling, where Bristow was like, it's about my sister, she's dead. And Strike just stopped himself saying, (laughs) what, her too? So I'm wondering if Strike stopping himself blurting out something rude is, is a signal that maybe he's talking to a murderer. Oh, yeah. Then she goes to all her obituaries. The part where she talks about the younger boy, Johnny Marks, who was her first victim, it gives me chills because... She says, he's the reason I'm a nurse. That's what put the idea in my head. She's saying it as if this is what gave me the inspiration to become a nurse, but maybe this is true. This is what put the idea in her head to continue killing. Yeah, he's sort of what gave her a taste for murder. But also, why did she become a nurse? Was it because she likes making people dependent on her? Was it because it would give her greater access to and knowledge of drugs to use her poisoning? What part of her pathology made her go to nursing as a profession? And how much of that was inspired by that moment where she kills Johnny Marks? That is so spooky and uncomfortable. (laughs) And we also get the Marks name, which is inspiration for the Spencer Spencer, that she uses. Yeah, so that's another clue. Although... That's a very convoluted clue that I don't think anyone would pick up, especially outside the UK, because we don't have Marks and Spencer. 
when Strike starts talking about Joanna Hammond, I wonder how nervous Janice mm. was because Joanna Hammond kind of started the whole thing. Yeah. He's asking if Margo would have known anything about Joanna's death. He's so close to the truth here. But she redirects the narrative. Yeah, again, she's so good at that. But she must have been a bit nervous here. Yeah, and she also says that it didn't put Talbot off. Talbot asked whether I ever visited that Joanna as a nurse. I told him she wasn't a St. John's patient, but that didn't put him off. So another sign that Talbot was making that connection in his head. It's the frustration underneath it all as well, like that that didn't put him off and sense the anger in, in that. When he interviewed her seven times, she was probably getting quite nervous even though she could tell there was something wrong with him and then he goes on to ask her more specifically and you don't know whether there was a death marco was worried about strike asked a death that was maybe categorized as natural or accidental but where she thought there might have been foul play what makes you ask that said janice just trying to clear up something talbot left in his notes he seemed to think marco might have been suspicious about the way somebody died you were mentioned in connection with the death janice's round blue eyes widened behind her glasses Oh, she stalls a little for time after that because yeah. he's hit the nail on the head there, doesn't he? So she does a little bit of stalling. Yeah, I mean, he's exactly right. This is exactly what happens. So, yeah. But she again changes the narrative, quickly figures out, well, no, let me bring it back around to Oakton and Brenner and that little group. Oh, she's good. And then the last topic, he waits till the end to ask about Satchwell, says that they were surprised to find out they knew each other. I kind of like the way Janice challenges him here when she says, I think you already know. She's not hiding that she's clever, is she? Not playing dumb, because maybe playing dumb would be a bit suspicious. So yeah, I think you already know. It's also interesting Janice defends Irene, because this is when she explains that Irene sometimes told people that she was a nurse. Mm -hmm. She may be annoying, but she's a loyal friend. Maybe that's the only reason why Irene is still alive. Or we know Irene's given her money, so that could also be an issue. But I think she also needs something to do. You know, if she kills off all of her victims, then she's not going to have anyone to slowly torture anymore. So she's got to keep a couple, you know, on tap, as it were. I wonder how Irene felt after all of this. The sense of betrayal Oh, yeah. Must have been really hard. And also, you know, she has to testify. Yeah. I feel like Irene might have kind of liked all of the drama and attention of narrowly escaping from a serial killer. That combined with no longer having irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. I do not envy the poor lawyer who had to cross-examine her, though. Could you imagine? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I didn't even think. Think that of poor that. court reporter and then the lawyer. Oh my God. Talk about a hot ass mess. Janice also says, look, don't give Irene a hard time, please. She don't seem it, but she's soft under all that silly stuff. She worries, you know, I can't see why I'd have to give her a hard time. I think this is just, she doesn't want him asking Irene about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Just trying to keep him away from Irene any way she can. And it helps that he already wants to stay away. From yeah. He's really playing into Janice's hand here with his desire to <laughs> have absolutely no interaction with Irene. Irene is doing Janice's job for her here. It's funny because doesn't he say earlier on, like, I was hoping I never have to speak to Irene again. Yeah. <laughs> but he probably should have. We didn't mention earlier that in the very beginning, she does ask him if he wants some tea. And everyone's very worried in hindsight, what did she do to that tea? But he never once takes a drink of that tea. Do you think he kind of suspected it at that point? That's exactly what I was going to say earlier when you reference his subconscious suspecting yeah. it, that maybe he didn't drink it for a reason. 
Yeah, maybe his subconscious was telling him not to drink, even though he has no conscious suspicion. That's an interesting point. And I don't know if it had any poison in it, but she did offer him a date. And it says that when she came back from making the tea, that she was more cheerful, which mm. makes me suspect that she did it. Her disappearing and coming back in a better mood made me think that, yeah, she definitely did something to the tea. It's a good catch. Chapter 51 is when Robin secretly interviews Brian Tucker, secretly, her something else to do. The epigraph. Never think that so, that monster can be mastered or destroyed. He is not a, he is not such a foe as steel can wound or strength can overthrow. Hmm, the monster in the epigraph. I think we know who this is talking about. Yeah, I think this is definitely talking about Creed, mm -hmm. especially from Brian Tucker's perspective. He warns Robin how twisted he is and gives new insight into how he holds so much power over the victim's families. So that to Brian Tucker, he must seem impossible to defeat at times. It must seem impossible that he'll get the answer that he wants. It's interesting to contrast that sense with the fact that once Corman does get in to interview him, he tricks him so easily. He just nails it. Yeah, I like that. But uh, yeah, I definitely agree with your interpretation there. And maybe steel can't wound him, strength can't overthrow him, but maybe brains, brains can overthrow him. While Robin's on her way to the meeting, Strike calls her. I like this line. As he walked into the cool breeze, the smoke was snatched from his lips every time he exhaled. I like that. It's so vivid. Mm, yeah, you, you like that it. for the lip mention, my friend. Let's be honest. <laughs> That's fully rooted in Strike thirst. <laughs> like Strike's lips being mentioned? All right. You may be right. So Robin is giving him the news that she was tailing SB Shifty's boss and that he looked like he might jump off the tower bridge. And she apparently watched him there for 40 minutes looking out into the water, which must have been so anxiety inducing, thinking you're about yeah. to watch someone commit suicide and you can't do anything to stop them because she physically can't pull him back. She's afraid that if she goes over there, she might startle him into jumping. So all she can do is watch and wait for Barclay. That's not exactly the mindset you want to be and won't go into interview exactly. Brian Tucker either. No, she still does a great job. She does. I like that uh, when Strike calls her and she mentions the dentist, she's like really convincing Robin. <laughs> she prepared the lie and she yeah. still couldn't sell it convincingly <laughs> to him <laughs> or Robin. I was still a little nervous about it. And she even references Career of Evil being fired and that this is different. Mm -hmm. But I'm starting to wonder if this whole thing was just put in here to distract us from what she's actually going to do with Ricci. Oh, yeah. He's not upset at all about this whole Creed Brian Tucker thing, but it does distract us from what he is upset about. So set up this whole thing and we're so anxious and then just hit us in the exactly. side of the face from nowhere with this Ricci thing. Yeah, exactly. I found it interesting that she framed what happened in Career of Evil as him firing her for pursuing a line of inquiry. She wasn't pursuing a line of inquiry. She was going against his orders to try and save Alyssa's daughters from a rapist, which is, I think she was in the right to do that personally, mm -hmm. but she wasn't inquiring about anything. Yeah. It's probably just a quick way to reference it. Yeah, I suppose. What were you guys' first impressions of Brian Tucker? I liked him. I like that he has his granddaughter with him who seems sweet. And I really like his passionate drive for justice for his daughter. Just like every other character, you get to see the good bad. So that passionate drive for justice, we learn estranged him from his other daughters mm -hmm. at some point because he couldn't let it go and it, it took over his life. So the yeah. good thing also had some downsides. He was a really well-drawn character. 
He seemed like the kind of benevolently, slightly sexist older guy, just talking over Robin and, and assuming that she's Strike's employee, although she probably introduced herself the first time they spoke as his partner. Um, but yeah, he was, he was nice enough. The way he's described so physically fragile, I suppose. Yeah, his granddaughter's there to help him walk. Yeah, and then, you know, in character and carry on and standing up for what he believes in and keep on trying to get to Creed and everything was just the complete opposite of him physically. He's weak physically, but he's not weak in other areas. Yeah, I like that. Sort of like an illustration of the inner passion drawing away from the physical, pouring everything into this passion and, and your physical strength recedes in service of that. I can understand his talking over Robin a little bit. And I think Robin does too, and kind of why she lets it go more than she normally would, because he's probably been ignored, not allowed to speak or called crazy for 40 years. So he just... Mm -hmm. I imagine that there's just this desperation to have someone hear him. Yeah. yeah. And not to mention the hope he must be feeling at this. Yeah, I guess Robin kind of represents like the last chance, but kind of reaching the end of the road. I feel like later on, there's something that makes me think he did this with Strike as well, because it's like something about how long they talked on the phone. And I imagine that Strike probably yeah. didn't get many words in on that conversation. <laughs> it's less annoying when Tucker does it than when Irene does it, I suppose. Yeah, well, it? definitely, yeah. The mention back to Roy Phipps when he had called Tucker half insane. It makes me a little sad. It makes me dislike Roy Phipps even more. I didn't think anything could possibly make me dislike Roy Phipps anymore, but yeah. And I think, again, you can see his desperation and his hope when he says, but this might be our one and only chance, so it must be done the right way and by the right interrogator. And we all know who the right interrogator That's Strike. Absolutely. When he's asking about Strike, and it's important to him that he doesn't give interviews and that he says he's in it for the right reasons. Yeah, he is. It's reflecting back to what Robin thinks about him. Mm -hmm. And we get to hear the story about Creed's eye scar. Oh, is that interesting to you? Absolutely interesting. Lots setting it up for showing him later with a big scar over his eye and just a little aside. And I, you know, I'm glad to hear that he had a hard time in prison. Yeah. Sorry, not sorry. Glad someone tried to gouge his eye out. Sad they didn't succeed. Guess that makes me a psychopath too. Not really. That's pretty justified. Quite literally an eye for an eye after what he did. He doesn't have enough eyes. The eye to murder ratio is a little off. It's interesting that they're talking about three missing women here. Louise, Margot, and Kara. Mm -hmm. And only one of them was killed by Creed. Yes. And the one who's the subject of this meeting. In the theory that the books are written in sort of parallel to other books in the series, so in a sort mm -hmm. of ring, there is right. that theory. But yes. I like that there is the parallel with the three murders that he solves in this book with the three men he's trying to figure out in Career of Evil. So Career of Evil, he has three men he has to figure out which one's the murderer. Mm-hmm. In this one, he's hired to find one murdered woman, and he ends up solving three different murders committed by three different men. Yeah. I just think that's a really neat parallel. It really is. That's a great find. I love that. This is a very efficient detective agency. You hire them for one murder, you get two. You get there three you for go. the price of one. It's amazing. <laughs> they should put that in the ads. Add all that time together, Tucker croaked, his eyes fill me with tears, and that's what I owe her to find out what happened to her. That's all I'm doing, giving her her due. Robin felt tears prickle behind her own eyelids. Tucker is much more sympathetic. He's a very sympathetic mm -hmm. guy. You feel for him here, and Robin does too. It's really sad that he spent so many years, 40 years, trying to find answers to this. And isn't it wonderful to think that Robin and Strike give him those answers at the end of this book? 
so proud of them. And it's really impressive what Brian Tucker has already done. The work that he's put in, he's the only family member of a victim to ever have been allowed contact with Creed. He also did all of that work refining the locations where her body could be and associating yeah. it with Creed's history. They should hire Brian Tucker as a new subcontractor if they ever need someone. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He clearly has a talent. Those locations, so his first guess is right. The Archer, the well at the Archer. And we know that that's correct. I thought it was interesting that his other location that he found was Church Wood, because I thought that might be rolling, throwing in a bit of a red herring for anyone who is still kind of thinking about the medium's prediction that she was resting in a holy place. So that could have been like a, ooh, like a Church Wood. Could that be it? When no, it was the Archer. Good for him. And then we get the horrible letter. He has two letters. One of them is the really horrific one where Tucker says that it's evidence that he had Margot Bamborough. Right. Because he's basically referencing having a doctor tied in his basement and torturing her as she, she begged. It's 100% a bunch of nonsense because we know he never had Margot, right? So he was absolutely just making things up for publicity to try and get people to pay attention and think that he did kill Margot. And then the other letter. Oh, that oh the horrifying. one he writes to Tucker. Yeah, the whole code was awful. Slight aside, interesting bit. It's the only part in the audiobook that's different. Isn't that right, Ken? I'm fairly certain, yeah, because it doesn't spell out what the message is they have to say it. He has to read out the message, yeah. Oh, God, that's horrible. Because there's no way to see it. No, of course. Yeah, and what a way to put more salt in the wound. I mean, I'm not surprised, but God, to sit yeah. here and say that your daughter cried for her mother whenever she died. God. It's awful. It was really gratuitously cruel. I like that Robin was smart enough to see where it was going and stopped reading it out loud. I hate how he's not taking responsibility in this letter when he calls the women monsters. The monsters made him do these things. Yeah, he doesn't remember the names of his victims. My memory shows me only the many-limbed, many-breasted monster with whom I cavorted. Ugh. So he's dehumanizing his victims completely. He's making them complicit in what happened by saying mm -hmm. that they converted. That's on a level of equality. It's absolutely disgusting. I like the way at the end how it describes Robin becoming aware of her surroundings. It's so good because I think we've all had that where you're kind of sucked into something and then life is happening around you. It's being absorbed in that moment in the letter as well. Suddenly be taken out of that and just be aware of normal, I suppose. I think the chapter ends beautifully with Tucker crying and his granddaughter comforting him and explaining how it's affected their whole family. And then it, it ends with Robin drew her jacket more closely around her and walked back to the office, her thoughts consumed by the terrible vacuum left in the wake of the vanished. It's really poetic. It is a beautiful ending to the chapter for sure. Chapter 52, Strike goes to relieve Robin from surveillance at Eleanor Dean's and they talk about the case and Strike is super jealous. <laughs> <laughs> the epigraph is oft fire is without smoke. I think that might be one of the shortest epigraphs in the whole book. <laughs> That's why I chose to read this one. <laughs> We're on Tealens. Actually, a friend of ours, Zoe Song, she had a good interpretation for this. And she says there's a lot happening in this chapter. But when Strike and Robin meet during surveillance and discuss the case, they talk about undetected murders, which very much fits our killer. She is the fire, but no one suspects because she causes no smoke. She appears sweet, kind, and innocent. That is actually a really good interpretation. 
I like that. I was also wondering, this is a re complete reversal of smoke without fire, but Morris texting Robin is kind of the smoke to which Strike is jumping to a big fiery conclusion that yeah. isn't actually there. So as Strike drives to Robin, he's talking to Barkley on the phone. I think my favorite part about this is him telling Strike he's gone soft. He was always soft. I know. Mm -hmm. Barkley just doesn't know. He has always been an enormous softy and a big hero for the underdogs. Ever since we first met him, Barkley just had to get to know him better. He also has more texts from Al and Prue. Strike is probably making some assumptions here, but if he's correct, it's so obnoxious that they think he should be apologetic after yelling at Rokeby over the phone. The absolute nerve. I always wonder in this book how much of Prue and Al bothering him is Rokeby doing the narcissist thing of recruiting other people to be his flying monkeys, getting them to do his dirty work. And how much of it is Al and Prue genuinely taking it upon themselves to try and like heal this rift between Strike and Rokeby. I personally think that it's a lot of Rokeby behind the scenes because from my perspective, he he's not a great guy, but I know that other people have different readings of him and that obviously we don't know for sure i mean everything we've kind of seen and heard of al up till now has been that you know obviously he's the one that strike has the most contact with also gets on with the best and is always kind of more supportive of strike and what he does so for him to constantly be like a dog with the bone on this whole thing of trying to get him to come is just really out of character so i agree with you that you know it's probably more ropey trying to push them to get him involved ropey probably is making them feel guilty and like you're the one who knows him so help me yeah. so they also talk about their new client miss jones who likes strike so many gorgeous women throwing yeah. themselves at strike all the time what am I doing wrong? <laughs> <laughs> no, you gotta you gotta eat a bunch of takeout and take up smoking, clearly. <laughs> Solve some murders, Sam. I need to move to the West Country and gain about seven stone <laughs> and just grunt at everything. Just be really grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> just be really rude. Maybe like bash your face into a wall to get the broken nose look. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's that it. Might help. Yeah. Get an ashtray thrown at my head or something <laughs> as well. The way she's described reminded me of Charlotte before he even thought of Charlotte. Undeniably beautiful yeah. with long legs, full lips and skin of expensive smoothness. So yeah, Charlotte came to mind for me. I also just think it's so funny how it's like he has to pry her off of him, like chewing gum. <laughs> and Pat is right there. Just judging the hell out of everything. Pat's sitting there puffing her vape, just glaring at him for having the nerve to have a woman be flirting with him. Because you know she assumes it's his fault and that right. he's encouraging this, right? That's a funny image. Speaking yeah. of funny. Polworth's theories about the type of women who find Shrek attractive. They're hilarious. Neurotic, chaotic, and occasionally dangerous, and their fondness for the bent-nose Xboxer indicated a subconscious desire for something rock-like to which they could attach themselves like limpets. <laughs> <laughs> Such a funny image. It's the best, isn't it? Just these things that just latch on and just don't move. <laughs> I will say that I think that Polworth might soon see a break in that cycle. Oh, I think Just a, so. a feeling. Well, Robin, of course, wasn't initially attracted to Strike at all. She only gets attracted to him later when she starts to know him properly, right? So no wonder she doesn't fit that mold because she's not attracted to him for the reasons that these women are. Yeah, this part makes me really, really excited for whenever Polworth and Robin end up meeting sometime in yeah. the future. And I want to hear what 
each person thinks of the other because I think that not only is Polworth going to pick up on like the thing between Strike and Robin, but also that Robin's actually not a total fucking nut job. (laughs) (laughs) You've broken my theory here, sir. I stand corrected. It's probably just going to walk away and be like, marry her. And that's it. That's all he's going to say. Please marry her. (laughs) And I love how when he gets there, Robin hops in his car. Of course. She just wants a little chat, you know. Aren't you keen to get away? He says, no. (laughs) (laughs) One thing we know about Robin is she's never keen to get away from work or strike. So no, she's not keen. She would much rather just sit in this dark car at 1 a.m. chatting with strike and watching some woman's house. Bless her. So they talk about the case. Robin talks about Oakton. Strike's comment, the, oh, fuck off. When you're talking about (laughs) him being an experienced (laughs) biographer. That was hilarious. That made me laugh as well. Strike has just lost his patience for these charlatans. He's like, fuck off. (laughs) And this is where he notices the text that comes in on Robin's phone. He is all eyes for that. Yeah. When he does realize that it's Morris, it has to hit him like it's in the middle of the night, right? What could he be? And Robin says he's just bored. It it implies that there's a friendship there. Not that he's jealous. Of course not. Uh I mean, we know that Robin is probably really fucking annoyed and that Morris has probably been harassing her all night and she's on her last nerve with him. But Strike can't know that because she's trying to be so professional. Okay, let's talk about Talbot's notebook because Robin brings some stuff up. Look here, though. That sentence between the skeleton's leg, the little symbol with the circle with the cross in it stands for the part of fortune. And it says it's the symbol in second money and possessions mother's house. So this is Robin making a case that the mysterious death was Oakton's grandmother, right? And they inherited the house. It might be. It does seem like this is talking about that particular death. But we know that his previous suspicious death did blank confront blank. We know that's referring to Johanna Hammond. So he must have been interested in this for for some other reason or was just hanging off on another trail. He could just be following the same leads that they're following as well. Yeah, he's probably going all over themselves. And she's trying to draw truth from madness. And she's trying to trace the connections that he was making. But he wasn't in his right mind. The connections he was making weren't making any sense. So it's making it so much harder. Yeah, I think there's another reference to Oakton here where it says Adams. And then it's a symbol for Virgo. Outlook is apt to be petty, difficult to conceal the fact that she has an axe to grind. True fortune says that. And then it's four symbols are scarlet women who ride upon the beast, which is, I mean, what we know of Dorothy Oakton. That's how she was. I'm sure she probably thought that every woman who wasn't her was a scarlet woman who rode upon the beast. So (laughs) it's definitely talking about Dorothy. All of this just makes them realize that they have to talk to Oakton. Yeah. I mean, even though we know that Oakton has absolutely nothing to offer, they have to pursue every lead. Right. One little gross detail in this page was that he was suggesting that Wilma was in love with the Essex butcher. There's a little bit where he puts Wilma's symbol in love with Capricorn, who he uses to represent the Essex butcher. So a little bit pointing towards that he was very suspicious of Wilma and pretty gross about her. What said Strike? because Robin was looking at him expectantly. I was waiting for you to jeer. I lost the will to jeer some way back. (laughs) I love it. I think at this point, we're all sort of losing the will to jeer and we're like, all right. I don't know. I'm still there. Yeah. You still have the strength to jeer. Yeah. For team rational. You're still fighting for team rational. Okay. Good for you. Thank you. 
I will. You can do it. Here's where he wonders if Robin has any Easter plans with Morris. Oh, these two. I wish Robin had opened up to him a bit about what she was going through in this book with her family and how she was feeling. I know she didn't because she didn't want to burden him. And also because her relationship or sort of the lack thereof. But I just, I wish that they both knew that they weren't alone in being really annoyed by their family, this book, and that they could have supported each other and, you know, vented a little more, done that whole talking thing. You mentioned his notes about Wilma. And I think it's interesting for the next chapter too, because it says primitive instincts, dark side personality, secrets, crude sensation, unfaithful, dishonest. It's just a bunch of nonsense. But also later mm -hmm. it says question family of Wilma, also neighbors. Yeah. So we see this telling us what Eden then tells us about how they were harassed by him. I guess it is more relevant to the next chapter, but yeah, this is very much setting up what we see coming up next. If anyone managed to go through and read these and decipher these, I don't know anyone who did that. I kind of just trusted the text to tell me what clues were important. And they do, but it's fun to see what other clues are in these drawings. The next bit makes me laugh so much. Barclay thinks it might be a rubber fetish. He need a lot of talcum powder to wriggle himself into anything made of rubber the size of that belly. Strike <laughs> <I> laughs. <laughs> Oh, Robin, she makes me laugh too. <laughs> I just love it when they make each other laugh. I do too. I want Robin to think about how she likes to make him laugh too. Yeah, that would be great. And then here we get Strike being super jealous even more. Jealous Strike. A most unwelcome possibility crossed his mind. Most unwelcome. Mm-hmm. I wonder why. Had Robin lied like Irene Hickson and for the same reason, his mind darted to what Robin had said a few months previously when she'd mentioned her ex-husband having a new partner. Oh, I didn't tell you, did I? I told Morris. It's still bothering him that she told Morris something and not him. That has been nagging at yeah. him. He's so annoyed. He's like, why didn't she tell me? I'm uh, her main man. He so wants to be her main man, right? That's <laughs> he does. He wants to keep that main man position for himself and himself alone. I love that he's so upset that it says he's glowering at the house. <laughs> glowering at the house. <laughs> he is so jealous. He was angry, he told himself, because he should have established a work rule that partners weren't allowed to date <laughs> subcontractors. <laughs> and for another reason, which he preferred not to examine because he knew perfectly well what it was and no good could come of brooding upon it. Yeah, what's the reason? At this point, their subcontractors are Morris, Barclay, and Hutchins. So who's the only partner that that rule could apply to strike? Well, it could. I mean, if there was. A I mean, yes, if there was a woman, it would be a future rule. But trying to implement that this book would, would be pretty funny. I don't think he ever would have done it. He's just jealous. Yeah, he is jealous. It's funny. He knew perfectly well what it was. So what's that reason? He does. <laughs> I like that he knows what it is, that yeah. he's not trying to pretend he's not in love with her. I just want him to think it out loud. No, the first time has to be when he says it. He's actually admitting it in his head now. That's the best bit. He just needs to say it out loud, like you say. Yeah, he's admitting it. Unlike Robin, who is still living in denial. I don't know. There are some bits that it comes yeah, through. Yeah, some bits. So here's the part that I referenced earlier. Robin doesn't bring up this part in the notebook, but it is here. So it's not in the text, but there is a clue, I think. And it says for Talbot's drawing above the skeleton, and it says she lives in the world of romance, in the perpetual dream of rapture. Silently and effortlessly, she goes about her work. Her image is of extreme purity and beauty with infinite subtlety. To see the truth of her is hardly possible for she reflects the nature of the observer in great perfection. 
I think this is Janice. I think this fits her to a T. And what I was referencing before, she lives in a world of romance and strike out of her as having a romantic heart. It is a little. And the other yeah. parts just to see the truth of her is hardly possible. I think this mm -hmm. is a big clue that's not in the text, but is in Talbot's drawings. Yeah, I think that really a lot of these pages are just rolling, throwing in a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of stuff and there's some good bits in there. Some good stuff, but there's a lot of red herrings or just color to make Talbot's mental illness seem real to the reader. It can't be all real because he would have solved the case. Yeah, of course. Although there is, there's a little drawing of a golden snitch. I know. I thought that too. I was like, is that a snitch? Well, Easter egg, but I believe that the snitch is that was drawn from various historical or mythological or alchemical symbolism in the first place. I've seen a few different ideas about what, what the snitch could represent on the internet. Well, then it's true. Of course. All right. Should we go on to 53? Yes. This is when Strike and Robin interview the Bayless sisters. And I'll do the epigraph since the last one was so short. Like three fair branches budding far and wide that from one root derived their vital sap. And like that root that doth her life divide their mother was. So this is pretty straightforward to me. It's like Wilma is the root and three fair branches are her three daughters. Yeah, absolutely. In the Fairy Queen itself, this is three sons. Priamond, Triamond, and Diamond. So in this, it's the daughters instead. But yeah, I agree. Wilma's the root that divided into these women that we get to meet. But first, we have to get through a lot of stuff about Creed that's really depressing and horrible. It's all pretty gross. It did sort of interest me because it reminded me of women's interest in true crime generally. A lot of women watch true crime. I think one motivation for it is wanting to know the worst that can happen, wanting to understand why it happens and how it can be avoided, like wanting to understand these men, right? Mm -hmm. And we see in this chapter and in all the chapters that Robin has clearly been spending a lot of time researching Creed, way more than yeah. Strike is. She knows a lot about his crimes and his victims. She can call the details to her memory, you know, at the drop of the hat. I mean, obviously part of her is just being thorough for the case. But I'm wondering if there's a bit of that same fascination drawing her here because she's been the victim of a horrible crime herself. But we've heard Strike say we know that she wanted to face down those same crimes every day to dive back into them so that she can bring justice and make it right. So she's fixating on Creed in that search for justice. And then I guess there's nothing particularly shippy about them seeing each other and waving hello. But I just like it. <laughs> they're always so happy to see each other. It's exactly. So I know. Anytime they're reunited, you know that they are both feeling that little spurt of happiness at mm -hmm. seeing the way the other person looks. You know, even <laughs> if he's exhausted and eating a bacon and egg McMuffin, which sounds delicious. He tells Robin that she could take the lead on this. I love it. Just another sign of partners. Yeah, it is. It's really great. So we meet with the three Bayless sisters, Eden, the labor counselor, Maya, the deputy headmistress, and Portia, the social worker. And Eden in particular is not happy to be here and she's very hostile, understandably so, right. as we learn. But we learn a lot about the Bayless family history here. And there's some really sensitive subject matter in this chapter. But I think that Rowling is really using this to explore some issues of race and trauma that are really important. So we learn that Jules Bayless, their father, was convicted of rape and that Eden says he wasn't guilty. He had a white girlfriend. When he broke up with her, she cried rape and got him convicted. And we see Robin's reaction, which is horror, the idea that she doesn't want to think that a woman could do this. And I don't like Robin, you know, I don't like to believe that any woman 
women could lie about being raped. But I know that there's truth that whiteness can be weaponized in this way in a racist society and that this has happened in the past. And then the other side of my brain is going in, but false accusations are statistically vanishingly rare and that men can and do rape women they're in a relationship with or who are trying to leave them. So I guess there are two sides of this and we can't know the truth. All we know is that Eden believes her father was innocent and we hear her side of the story and by proxy his. And we know that the judge believed the woman, but that could very easily because she was a white woman um, accusing a black man in racist society rather than because she was telling the truth. And I mean, we can't know the truth for real. I just like that she's written this and left it sort of ambiguous and raise the question in our minds because we feel hesitant and unsure it brings the issue up and it, it leaves us thinking about it i think it's interesting that this question seems to reflect among the sisters themselves because i get the impression that maybe the other two aren't so convinced of his innocence Mm-hmm. But they don't say anything because Eden is so passionate about it. Yeah. It makes me wonder what Jules was like as a husband because Wilma was very desperate to divorce him yeah. before he got out because if he got out, she would be trapped, right? So it right. makes me wonder if there was something else going on there that we don't get to hear about. Yeah. It makes me wonder what Wilma thought about his guilt or innocence and if maybe the other two sisters are agreeing with her yeah. and Eden agrees with him. We don't get a ton of insight into it, but I think it's there. Yeah, it is interesting. And I like the bit about a proxy war playing out across the generations. It's a really cool depiction, a really good depiction of family dynamics. Um, And in this bit, we also get to hear more details about the man that raped Robin and what he said during court, which to me is absolutely horrific. And we know that women who are victimized in this way often suffer the additional trauma of going through the court system because it is an additional trauma. And here him spout these lies about her in court must have been absolute agony for her and i feel so much and i want him to suffer they're given their first piece of physical evidence yes the note it's so amazing that they got some physical evidence yeah. after 40 years because that is a real something to show that they did the work it says robin glanced sideways at strike and saw her own barely disguised astonishment mirrored there i like when they mirror each other <laughs> Got a triple jinx there. Like the man in love with the nanny mirrored her. Is that a reach? Because I said I would look for strike mirroring Robin. Does this count? No. Am I going to say it counts? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this note introduces a new... A new theory. They thought that their uncle Marcus sent the note on behalf of Jules Bayless because Margo was helping Wilma divorce him. I like that this note, you know, get away from my girl, reveals a lot about Margo that... She's helping more than one woman escape from men in their situations. Mm -hmm. Multiple men could have sent her this note because she's helping multiple women, right? Yeah, absolutely. It tells us a lot about who she was. Yeah. What a great person. Really enforces her personality for sure. Yeah. It's very clear to me that Eden had a different experience with Talbot than her sisters did. It seems like there's a lot of trauma there, being interviewed and- And being harassed. Harassed, yeah. As a 16 year old kid who's already been going through a lot, I like Strike's outrage when he finds out that Talbot interviewed her alone because Strike tries to do the right thing. And then Eden's point that black girls are supposed to be tough. They're not fragile like white women are. And she is experienced being on the receiving end of that prejudice. As a side note, I love what we learn about Will 
Vilma between the lines in this chapter because she sounds like a really amazing human being. So she was clearly yeah. strong. She was clearly determined. She was clearly smart. She raised three successful, intelligent girls to women. She did a lot of good in her community as a social worker. And I thought here that she actually stands as a bit of a parallel to Margot because she too is coming from the lower class. She's working hard to get an education to escape the trap of generational poverty. She's choosing a career that helps people. And you know, it, it makes me think that Wilma got to live the rest of her life. And I'm really happy that she did because we see her legacy, her three branches in these women, all of yeah. whom I like. I like them as characters. I like them as people. I think they're great. It's a great tie into the epigraph of her being the root of this family. It really is. Ooh, we learned some secrets. Yeah, we learned that Wilma wasn't actually doing the cleaning. That was their Aunt Carmen. That was a great twist. I, I didn't see that coming. It was a good twist. We were like, oh, it wasn't Wilma at all. She didn't like Cynthia. It says she thought the girl was after Dr. Bramborough's husband. Went red every time she said his name. I swear, weren't yes. we trying to find this like many episodes ago? We were trying to find this quote because it's another example of blushing, re revealing feelings. And I'm like, yeah, kind of think Cynthia was definitely crushing on him. That reminds me of in chapter 50, which I forgot to mention, but it says that when Janice is collecting all of her murder supplies, it says she was pink in the face. And so that reference of blushing and revealing inner feelings. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that was also a clue to something that Janice is hiding. Anyway, sorry. No, Back to the chapter cool. one. No, it's good. So the one clue that is revealed here that Wilma was sick and that they yes. thought it was from stress. We know that Janice was poisoning her. Who wasn't she poisoning? <laughs> she was poisoning everybody. Man, it's amazing she hadn't gotten caught because she was just poisoning everyone. Eden brings something up that I do want to mention. Mm -hmm. She mentions the girl Tiana Medaney, I think that's how you say her name, and asks if anybody knows who she is because she is a real missing person. I want to find a link so that people can link and see that she's a real missing person. But the frustrating thing is that Eden is exactly right because there's almost no mention of her online whatsoever. If you search her name, you get more results for troubled blood than you do her actual disappearance. And then even then when I find something about her disappearance, it's just the bare minimum information, her name, age, the date she went missing and where she's from. I was only able to find one photo and the facts of where she went missing, missing from Lambeth on January 25th, 2013 at the age of 18. And that's pretty much all there is about her. Wow. It's really sad. It, the fact that we can't find anything on the internet about her sort of proves the point that Eden's making. Yeah. yeah. The media loves a good victim, an attractive, white, preferably middle-class, innocent, respectable woman, man. So these are the victims that matter, that receive the coverage, and the women of color, the prostituted women, they sort of disappear without a peep. It's just discouraging that you can't find any information about her. It super is. And I'm wondering if... Rowling included her name to try and draw attention to that fact. She included a real victim to make people realize, yeah, there's nothing about this girl out there. What happened? And if that's what she was hoping to do, then I hope to do that as well. Yeah. 
There is a bit of a clue here when Portia gets up to go to the bathroom and they talk about her being a social worker. She's a social worker, isn't she? Asked Robin. Yeah, sighed Maya. A backlog of a hundred desperate messages every morning. A clue, yeah, that a real social worker would not have called strike back, especially not so quickly. Yeah. I like that little sweet moment where Portia goes to hug Eden and thanks her for doing this. And strike pretends that he's reading his notes. <laughs> yeah. How considerate of him. He often talks about Robin's tact, but he's pretty good too. He can be tactful, absolutely. This is at least the second time that an interview has resulted in sort of a healing moment for family trauma in the book, isn't it? Because this happened with the Phipps as well. Yeah. Kim was like, well, that was healing. That's a nice pattern that stirring up past pain can lead to a bit of a healing moment. I wonder if that's going to be significant in the next book with maybe someone himself. <laughs> Ooh, fingers crossed. That would be interesting. We do hear Betty Fuller's name for the first time. Betty Fuller, we get a new name for Strike and Robin to follow up, a new direction for them to go into. The way it says that Betty Fuller told Wilma about the note, she told her a bit sly to see her reaction. It kind of reminds me of when they interview her and she absolutely does this with Robin too. She says things just to get a reaction. Some people just like to get reactions from people. That's a real thing. I've met people like that. Oh yeah, me too. Clearly she hasn't changed. <laughs> I also think that this is interesting. People talk, don't they? And they like making themselves important. And Robin remembered Janice Beattie saying exactly this as she passed on the rumor of Margot Bamber appearing in the graveyard. I kind of talked about it earlier, but she's basically just dangling the answer right in front of our faces. Like, hey, think about Lemmington's Spa. <laughs> think about Janice liking to talk. Hindsight's a great thing, isn't it? Seriously, she must have had so much fun planting all of these clues yeah. and everything. Makes me even more curious about what clues she's dropping recently when she said that. Oh yeah, oh, I can't wait. I love the way the interview ends because it's going back to some earlier themes. It wasn't the first time that Robin had had cause to consider how much collateral damage each act of violence left in his wake. The disappearance of Margot Bambro had evidently wreaked havoc in the lives of the Bayless girls, and now she knew the full extent of the grief it had brought them, and the painful nature of the memories associated with it. She perfectly understood Eden's initial refusal to talk to detectives. Just sort of that idea about the damage that each act of violence does, the way it spreads. And continues with the next generation even. Yeah, it does. The, the impact that violence has on everyone's lives, not just the person who's victimized. And I think we see that with Lauren and also with these three sisters. It is really a theme running throughout these chapters and the book. And then Cormoran having an idea. So what do you think he's thinking about here? I think he's thinking about women being sick because he's noticed a bunch of people being sick in this time right and this is the coincidence that he mentions later that he'd spotted that a lot of people are throwing up and, and being sick to their stomach on this case including him yeah including him there's a lot of stomach illness going around troubled tummies <laughs> troubled tummies <laughs> well we got the title for the episode absolutely uh, i also think it's kind of funny that you know she mentions this very specific breed of dog because that's actually the same kind of dog that Joe is has. it she has a west highland terrier uh, yeah i think she has a couple yeah Aww. her dog's made a little cameo that's cute 
Thanks for coming back, Sam. Yeah, no, thank you. No, thank you. Yeah, Thanks for having thank you so me. I love coming on and chatting. So it's great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of chapters 54 through 56. If you enjoy what you've heard so far, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the SE Files pod with regular updates announcing future episodes. If you'd like to send us a response to anything you've heard or have something you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can always email us at sefilespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening, and we hope to catch you next time for another episode of the Strike and Ellicott Files.